electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Hi, everybody. One basis point. You see that chart? One basis point ahead on The Exchange. Just how aggressive is the Fed going to get? We'll hear from someone who expects at least two, maybe three half-point hikes in the months ahead. But former Fed President Bill Dudley says it's too late and the Fed has made a recession inevitable. Is he right? We'll debate that as more and more yield curves invert. Stocks are shrugging it off, though. I see all the green still on that wall over there. They're higher today. They're up for the fourth straight day. It helps a little bit. We have growing hopes for a ceasefire in Russia. We will get all the latest. Ceasefire or not, Europe is looking to secure energy supplies from anyone other than Russia these days. The U.S. stepping in with billions of meters of cubic uh, cubic meters, she said, of nat gas. And we've got a list of U.S. companies that could benefit. But first, let's start with today's markets, get you the key data points to watch. I'll start with the markets overall. The Dow's up 108 points, about a third of 1% here. The S&P's up 22. It's three points shy of 4,600, which is a level we haven't closed above since January. Pretty impressive rebound if we get there. The Nasdaq composite up 150 points, or 1%. It is leading the way. The energy complex in the red again today on ceasefire hopes to some extent. Uh, Off-session lows, but still down under 103 a barrel. We were below 100 in earlier trading. Those lockdowns in Shanghai also helping relieve some demand pressure on the market. Meanwhile, the meme stocks have been flying this week. GameStop AMC halted today for volatility earlier on. We see them in the red now, but they've had huge moves. GameStop up 18% since Monday. That was yesterday. AMC up nearly 50%. The travel stocks also seeing a nice bounce with hotels, cruises, and airlines all higher for those who have been betting on the reopening trade, uh, feeling pretty good today. And Robinhood soaring after announcing they'll extend trading hours for certain users of the platform Quick check on shares of Hood shows them up 26%. They're over $16 per share. Okay, now let's get to the yield curves, hugely in focus right now. The 2-10s yield curve is about to invert. We are literally one and a half basis points away. Here's your 20-year history so you can have a quick look at how it's been a predictor of recessions in the past. Let's go back here. 2006, around the Jan-Feb time frame is when we first went negative. This went down uh, like there. We just can't go that much below zero. Anyway. Early in 2006 is when it inverted. December 2007 is when the recession set in. It ended in the middle of 2009. So you can see the inversion happened. We actually uninverted for a couple months, went back into the inversion. Sure enough, the recession happened. Moving throughout the expansion, the yield curve, the twos, tens, did invert again right here in 2019. Of course, we all know what was coming right around the corner. Even more impressive, given that no one foresaw the pandemic. So you can see why the street takes this pretty seriously. So it sounds pretty chilling, but let's just compare this chart, which you'll see looks almost exactly like the chart of the three-month, 10-year yield curve. In fact, I'm not even going to clear it because you can see almost the exact same thing happening. Three-month, 10-year, using basically a proxy for the current Fed funds rate, also inverted here in 2006 at almost the same time, told us about the recession that was coming. Fast forward to 2019, it also inverted right there, as you can see it, told us the pandemic downturn was coming. But look at the difference today. This spread, 1.8 points. It's near a historic high. Look, this is the highest level we've seen here 
going back to the expansion, we're nowhere close to inverting. This debate, this spread is unusual. The bulls will look at this and say this still signals a strong economy. The bears are looking at the twos, tens, which I think we're going to hear a lot more about this afternoon if it does invert. So does it all mean that Bill Dudley is right, that the Fed's application of its framework has left it behind the curve in controlling inflation and that a hard landing is now virtually inevitable? Joining me to talk about all of this is Krishna Guha. He's the vice chair at Evercore ISI. Krishna, we're thrilled to have you here on a day like this. What are you taking in terms of signals from the behavior of these yield curves? So the behavior of the yield curves, plural, certainly deserves really close attention from Fed policymakers and investors. And I'm certainly not going to ignore any of these signals. But I will tell you that here's another yield curve that I look at, the real yield curve. If you compare the real two-year with the real 10-year, the real two-year yield is still way below the real 10-year yield. And that's giving me a bit more confidence that a recession is not right around the corner. So that's, you think, the most important message for investors here? I think the larger message is that, you know, we want to look at multiple different versions of the yield curve. Don't get fixated on one single metric like the two's tens. Look at the three month to the 10. You're exactly right to flag that one up, telling a different story. Look at the real twos to tens against the nominal twos to tens. You create a picture, a better picture by looking at all these indicators. They are, some of them starting to flash a warning sign. When you look across the board at this range of metrics, I would say there is overall not a signal of imminent recession risk here. And I think we should clarify that there's two different camps about recession. There's the camp who thinks the economy is weak now, the tightening is a mistake, and that's how we're going to get into a recession. I'd call it, if you want, the Dave Rosenberg camp. There's also the camp, this is what Bill Dudley's warning is about, Larry Summers and many others, who say the Fed is so far behind the curve, they're going to have to tighten so much in the future that that will guarantee a recession. So two very different, one dovish, one hawkish approach to the recession risk right now. 100%, 100%. The timeline is, I think, quite different with those two stories, right? In the, the Rosenberg-type story, the economy must, I think, roll over this year, right, as the Fed starts to kick in these hikes in the QT. In the Dudley Summers-type story, and there are some nuances between different versions of this story, I think, if I understand it right, the recession risk is more next year, right, when the Fed gets to, uh, gets to say, 3% of Fed funds, finds that's not enough, has to keep on going, you know, maybe even gets as far as 4 or something like that. And then every single yield curve inverts, economy slows really brutally, and we get a full bore recession. So the bad news about the, the sort of dovish, the Rosenberg camp, is that uh, well, they would say the Fed needs to back off. The good news about the Summers, Dudley, if you want to call it that camp, is there's this, an implication that they can still save us from a recession if they're aggressive enough right now. And that brings us to your call for hikes. Three half-point hikes possibly at this point. Could that do enough to catch up with the neutral rate to keep us uh, from that problem next year from a downturn? So I still think that it is plausible we could pull off a soft-ish landing. But it's going to require the Fed to be very nimble 
and to thread what is not, you know, a pretty tight needle here. So what's our call on the Fed, right? Three key ideas here summed up in the phrase up hard, then down again. So what does this mean? First, we think the Fed is embracing the idea of more of a front-loaded level shift back towards a neutral rate this year delivered via several 50s. Exactly how many hard to pin down our base case is two or three, probably with the first 50 coming in May. So with two or three high 50s and quarter points at the rest of the meetings this year, you're looking at the funds rate around two and a half at the end of the year. I think the Fed would view that as a neutral-ish setting looking forward. Then second leg, we see the Fed pushing on into the low mid threes in the first half of next year, trying to overhaul that core inflation rate, get real rates positive, and then over time apply a little bit of restraint. But then third leg to our call, we think that the market and the macro data is going to tell the Fed the economy can't really handle a three and a half type Fed funds rate for any extended period of time. We think we will get a proper recession scare. And if the Fed is quick enough, they will then pull off what they did in 2018-19. They will cut. They will cut rates three times in our base case, early 24, maybe late 23, come back down to a funds rate in the two and a quarter, two and a half percent range. And that's something the economy, we think, can sustain and potentially extend the business cycle. So we can see the possibility of achieving a soft landing here. But boy, it's going to be hard to get that exactly right. And again, with the were we nine thousandth away from uh, inversion right now? We're less than a basis point. Um, what would you make of the level of the ten-year yield, just broadly speaking? Maybe we can show it again here. It's below the Fed funds rates you're talking about. Is the market already pricing in the scenario you just described? So I guess the market. I, I think the market pricing is sympathetic, shall we say, to the sort of contours of the view we set out: up hard, but then down again. The point is that that does not have to be associated with a recession. If you get the timing right, you can actually avoid the recession. Uh, but I would add to that that you've got to be careful because you have to stay tight long enough to start to bring the inflation down in a more definitive way, but not so long that you get the recession. So the landing zone here for the soft landing, I think, is still there, but it's narrowed. And of course, it's narrowed because of the complexity of all the shocks that are hitting us now, including, of course, this big war shock, as well as all the difficulties that already existed, yeah. you know, pulling off a soft landing out of the pandemic. It's like Elon Musk trying to land those boosters, you know, back on the floating barge in the middle of yep. the ocean. Krishna, uh, thanks again for your time today. It's great to have you here. Anytime. Take care. Krishna Guha with Evercore ISI. $47 billion in seven-year notes just went up for auction. Let's see what signals we can glean from this one and check in with Rick Santelli at the CME. Rick? You know, you're not going to glean a lot of signals from this one, Cully. This one's an asterisk auction. I gave it a C-plus with an asterisk, and I'll tell you why. It priced a whisker under 2.5, 2.499, 47000000000 years. The when-issued market yield was lower. Higher yield, lower price, that's never good. That's one of the biggest demerits for this auction. But there were certain aspects of it that were spectacular. Now, the bid to cover at 2.44, that was best since August of 20. 60.9 in indirects, roughly average. The direct bidders at 28.6. I have a 15-year database. I couldn't find anything near that. 
very strong. And dealers only took 10.5%. That's the smallest amount they've taken since September of 17. So the internals were really pretty darn good. The pricing was ugly, but the range today in the one issue market was very big, hence the asterisk. Now, as far as these yield curves, everybody needs to take a deep breath, and I'll tell you why. One basis point separates twos to tens. It can't be any other way. The twos and the coupon curve, coupon curve, twos, threes, fives, sevens, tens, twenties, thirties, they're building in Fed based on the stacking of the term structure of interest rates. The T-bill market gets auctioned every week in real time. It keeps up with the market. The only time I would use the 10-year rate as an indication with respect to the rest of the curve for an inversion that would cause a recession is in a bull-spreading market, meaning prices are going up, yield is going down. So twos to tens, and tens in particular, are a lower yield. In a bear market where prices are going down and yields are going up, the inversion is mostly telling you that the three-month to two-year is looking at what is going on with the Fed being late to the party. Okay? In other words, three months to twos is what, about 180-something basis points. Three months to tens is probably around 180 basis points. And as we go through time, if the Fed delivers on what the market and the coupons have built in, every week those T-bill rates will go up. And if we're really in a recessionary mood, the 10-year yields at some point will start to go down relative to that three-month rate. We are nowhere near that scenario yet. People can have any opinions they want. I personally just don't see a recession in the cards this year. And I don't see the yield curve changing that. Great points, Rick. We appreciate it. We will see you a lot more over the next hour or two as we nevertheless watch the twos tens and see if it dips below zero. Quick programming note, we also have Philly Fed President Patrick Harker joining us on Power Lunch next hour. We'll, of course, ask him about rate hikes. We'll ask him about the yield curve, uh, inflation, and much more. That'll be around 2.40 p.m. My next guest says he remains bullish on stocks for the rest of the year, warning the market often sends false signals about recessions, that the underlying economy is strong, and he has several names he thinks are particularly well-positioned right now. Let's welcome in Chris Grisanti. He's the chief equity strategist at MAI Capital Management. So, Chris, like Rick and many others, you're not necessarily, uh, you know, your hair's not on fire over the twos, tens inversion that we are about to see. No, I'm, I'm kind of tired of hearing about the yield curves. It, <laughs> it kind of reminds me of the word transitory last year. This Now this year, it's it's yield curves. So uh, we look at the three-month, 10-year. It's still, as you pointed out, Kelly, still star, uh, steeply sloped. Uh, so, so, you know, we don't see a recession in the car, certainly not this year. And what makes you so bullish on stocks? Because there are still uh, plenty of headwinds to contend with. Sure. Well, well, I like to do this this kind of mental exercise. Let's say you went on uh, vacation three months ago and just came back, and you found out that the the tenure had gone up 100 basis points and it's its fastest rise uh, in history to start a year. Uh, that Russia invaded Ukraine and that oil had spiked up 45 percent. You'd probably be somewhat surprised that the S and P is only down, you know, about four percent. Uh, and so I think the market has actually shown a lot of resiliency in an otherwise really turbulent time. We don't see another 100 basis points on the 10-year. So we think going forward, things will actually be a little better than they were for the first quarter. And, and we think it's a great time to buy stocks. You like stocks like Google and Amazon. I think people can understand that cash flow. Sure. Show me the money, to quote Jerry Maguire. <laughs> I'll right, borrow your, right. your phrasing. Maguire. You also like right. Domino's and Home Depot. Do you have any insight as to why some of these pandemic names are suddenly 
kind of regaining their traction. Why are the meme stocks flying again? And why sure. do these names to you look attractive here? Sure. So, so you really have to separate the baby from the bathwater when you're talking about what I what I call COVID hangover stocks. And, and there'd be Home Depot and 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 uh, Domino's in one hand, where, where they just had such terrific growth a year ago, year and a half ago, and now they're finding it tough to compare against those periods. But these are terrific long-term companies. So, so that's the baby. And the bathwater may be some of these meme stocks, some of the other kind of what I would call flash in the pan pandemic stocks. But for the pandemic, they, they really wouldn't have been great companies. So, so we really like Home Depot and Domino's. They're trading below their average valuation in a, in a market that's trading considerably above its average valuation. And, and they're long-term terrific companies. They buy back stock. And like you said, it's a Jerry Maguire market. Show me the money. And these guys can show you the cash flow. So we're excited about it. Final word, Chris. What do you say to those who say, but consumer sentiment, but the Fed's going to screw it up. They're behind the curve. You know, they're they're just worried about recession lurking around the corner, even if it's in 2023. Sure. So, you know, we're going to climb a wall of worry and that you mentioned a lot of them. And uh, but, but boy, uh, in a month, we'll be in the middle of earnings season. I, I think it'll be an impressive earnings season, especially. And this is really vital, Kelly, that, that uh, sentiment is uh, and expectations are so low. So I would take advantage of that. I, I you know, pick your bets for the long term and, and make them here. All right, Chris Grisanti, great to have you today. Thank you for your time. Thanks, Kelly. We appreciate it. Coming up, the average rate on the 30-year fixed mortgage up by the most in a week since 2013. Next, we've got new numbers on home prices that might tell us what to expect for housing in the months ahead. Plus, with the U.S. and EU striking a global nat gas deal, which energy stocks are poised to benefit? We'll get one analyst's top picks with LNG prices up more than 20% just this month. We're back in a moment. Experience the joy of running in the new Triumph 22 from Saucony, the original running brand. Stacked with luxury foam cushioning, Triumph 22 turns miles into smiles with the ultimate blend of comfort and energy return. Shop Triumph 22 at Saucony.com. That's S-A-U-C-O-N-Y.com. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration. Our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with P. Jim, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back. Home prices even hotter than expected in January after a record climb last year. Diana Olick is here with the latest. Diana? Well, Kelly, after cooling off for four straight months, home prices re-accelerated in January. Nationally, prices rose 19.2% year-over-year, up from 18.9% in December, and that's on the much-watched S&P Case-Shiller Index. Phoenix, Tampa, and Miami saw the biggest gains, all right around 30%, and 16 of the 20 cities on the index reported higher annual price increases in January than in December. Washington, D.C., Minneapolis, and Chicago saw the smallest, but they were all still up 
double digits from a year ago. Now, while the index is a three-month running average, mortgage rates began to climb in January. The average rate on the 30-year fixed ended 2021 at around three and a quarter percent and then ended January at 3.68 percent, according to Mortgage News Daily. It's now flirting with five percent. We went to an open house a few days ago for a Dallas condominium where the competition continues. Lauren Poy almost bought a home two years ago, but she decided to wait. Now just kind of having buyer's regret of not getting into it then, just seeing how much the market has gone up. So definitely have had to adjust my budget a lot. While some are adjusting their budgets, others are no longer qualifying for a mortgage at these higher rates. The realtor at the open house told us she's now seeing more cash offers in the market than ever before. Kelly? It's crazy out there. Diana, thank you very much. Now, when it comes to housing, how and when the Fed unwinds its balance sheet could have a huge impact. That's because the Fed is currently sitting on $2.7 trillion worth of mortgage-backed securities. It's the largest holder of those assets. And selling, according to my next guest, would create huge dislocations that could put even more upward pressure on mortgage rates. Joining me now is Walt Schmidt. He's senior vice president at FHN Financial. Walt, it's great to see you. And would you say it's, it's gone from being a a remote possibility to a, a bigger one lately that the Fed could actually try to sell these assets? Well, thanks for having me, Kelly. Certainly, it's something that's been talked about a lot more here lately. Uh, it's something that we never considered really could even happen, but certainly some of the uh, the Fed governors have started talking about it. I think this very conversation really has to do with the tension that we have with monetary policy between theory and practice. Uh, the Fed obviously wants to get inflation under control, They've talked about the fact that in the long term, they don't want to have a large holding of mortgage-backed securities. And so then it becomes a matter of timing. And of course, as we've heard a few times throughout the morning, the yield curve uh, potentially is about ready to invert. Right. Uh, so I think this tension between practice and theory is what we're, is what we're really talking about. Basically, the, the concern is who would buy them? You know, if the Fed holds, you know, $2.6 trillion, the rest of the banks altogether hold less than $3 trillion worth. You throw in a That's, couple hundred billion for the asset managers. Who's going to buy them? Well, that's the whole point. There really isn't a buyer type out there that's large enough to take on this paper. It's one thing for the Fed to buy three to five billion dollars worth of mortgage-backed securities per day. It's much, much more difficult to sell them. In addition to the numbers you just quoted, right now, I just looked at the, the data here recently, all dealers, all primary dealers that hold mortgage-backed securities only own 50 billion right now. So if the Fed were to put out uh, bonds uh, for those dealers to bid, it would very quickly overwhelm what their balance sheets have. So one would anticipate some sort of auction process. Hmm. And then, of course, we think back to Maiden Lane back in 2010 to 2012 when they sold assets back then. But Maiden Lane was only $60 billion. We're talking 2.6 to $2.7 trillion. Wow. So it's a very large uh it's a very large piece for the market to have to absorb. Do they have to sell? Could they just sit on this and go, you know what, at some point everyone pays the mortgage off and these will just run off on their own? Well, we think that's what's going to happen, right? I mean, if you look at how paydowns are happening right now, uh, a couple months ago we were paying off at 20% per year. Now we're at a rate of about 10 to 15% per year. Hmm. If you look at that and take that out into the future, uh, the, the average life then of what they own is about seven years. So you could see a much smaller portfolio over seven years. And again, it's just more of a problematic thing. Yes, they'd like to have fewer mortgages, 
but it's just, it's very difficult. And the last point I'll make is the point that Diana made, and that is simply the fact that the market's already done the work for the Fed, the, the Fed's own work. Uh, if you look at mortgage rates, they were below 3% just a few months ago. Now they're almost 5%. So monetary policy works with long and variable lags, as Milton Friedman said. So perhaps the Fed now is willing to, to let that happen and see what happens to the housing market going forward. Sure, because we're just in the early innings of this. What's been going on with the spread between treasuries and mortgages? Has that widened at all or could it widen? In other words, right now, mortgages have basically tracked the upward move in rates, but at some point, could they become more decoupled? Well, it already has decoupled quite a bit. So if you look at MBS or mortgage-backed security spreads to treasuries, those have widened on the order of anywhere from 40 to 60 basis points, 0.4 to 0.6%, just depending on what type of asset you're talking about. Uh, it, it would certainly widen more, in our opinion, if they were to sell or, or anticipate that they were going to sell. Last week, we heard some rumblings from the FOMC that that might be a possibility and spreads widen quite a bit on the order of 10 to 15 basis points just last week alone. Uh, already today, just today, uh, spreads are performing well again. So I think the market started to pull back a little bit from that idea of Fed selling. But uh, you're going to have more uh, Fed governors on your show, I think, later today and then uh, in the coming days. And so we might get more information from them. Uh, just from a market practitioner standpoint, though, it seems fairly problematic, uh, at least at this point, given the size of the portfolio, that they would be able to unwind it very efficiently. Yeah, so we'll we'll be listening for any hint that they might feel that they have to uh, at this point, but maybe they feel comfortable watching rates do what they will. Walt, great to have you today. Thanks so much. We appreciate it. Great. Thanks, Kelly. Appreciate it. Walt Schmidt with FHN. Still ahead, the yen is at a seven-year low against the dollar after a sharp decline this month. We'll tell you what's behind the recent plunge and what officials are now trying to do about it. Plus, will solar companies get scorched as the Biden administration cracks down on imports? We'll bring you details on the names that could benefit or get hurt. The exchange is back in a moment. Experience the joy of running in the new Triumph 22 from Saucony, the original running brand. Stacked with luxury foam cushioning, Triumph 22 turns miles into smiles with the ultimate blend of comfort and energy return. Shop Triumph 22 at Saucony.com. That's S-A-U-C-O-N-Y.com. If a friend asks how you're doing and you say, I'm okay. When the truth is, I don't want my problems to burden anyone. Or you say, hang it in there. Because... If I ask for help, they'll just think I'm weak. Then this is your sign to call, text, or chat. 988 for free, confidential support. Anytime. You don't have to hide how you feel. Welcome back to The Exchange. We're still positive for stocks this afternoon, although the Dow is 300 points off its session high, so that tells you something. We're still up 118 for the Dow, 25 for the S&P, and the Nasdaq is up 159. Let's take a look on where we stand on that twos, tens yield curve. It was within a point. They're even less of a basis point away from inversion. Uh, We'll continue to follow it closely. Much debate about the significance, uh, but it has predated recessions over the past couple of decades. The dollar index on pace for its first negative session in five, but it's still higher now than it was at the start of January. Most of that action coming from its strength against the yen, which has meanwhile plunged to its lowest level in seven years. We're used to hearing about yen strength, not weakness. Seema Modi is here with more. Seema? Kelly, this is a historic move in the Japanese yen. Fresh seven-year low. Two main reasons investors bracing for an aggressive Fed 
strengthening the dollar against the yen. Uh, Japan is also an importer of oil. Therefore, when prices rise, it has to sell yen to buy oil in dollars. There's an interesting inverse correlation between the yen and oil playing out this year. Here's why this all matters to U.S. investors. If the Bank of Japan steps in to support the currency, that would push rates up and, and as Peter Bookbar says, would result in a ripple effect, sending European and U.S. yields even higher. That interest rate differential so many investors have been betting on between Japan and the U.S., would narrow. The question is if Japan decides to intervene. The key level to watch on the Japanese yen, according to Deutsche Bank, is 126. It's currently trading right around 122. Uh, in the past, a weak currency would invite criticism from U.S. politicians. If you remember when President Trump was in office, he would call out Japan and China and other countries for manipulating their currency to help their economies. This time, we haven't seen the same level of rhetoric because a stronger dollar has been seen by economists as one way to put a lid on U.S. inflation. Great point, Sima. Come on over. But So let's recap everything that's going on in Japan right now. They are thinking about or have already started to try to cap the yield uh, on their 10-year uh, securities, which could that's an open-ended commitment. It could put them at the central bank with huge financial exposure. Yeah. Now they might intervene to push the yen down if it pushes up against 126. Why? why? Why do they feel like they have to fight this so hard? Yeah, the rest of the world is moving towards tightening, and Japan is simply not there yet. Their economy is on the mend. Inflation is not as big of a concern in Japan, and that's why they're not in a place right now to tighten rates and therefore this effort to uh, really stabilize the currency. You know, as you said before, this has been a safe haven trade for investors. So to see the Japanese yen move in such a historic way, uh, it throws off carry trades and also changes the way Americans view this specific asset as a safe haven. It absolutely does. Now, we watch it with great interest. Seema, we really appreciate it. Our Seema Modi. Let's get to Tyler Matheson now for a CNN NBC News update. Hi, Tyler. Hey, Kelly. Uh, the United States downplaying Russia's announcement it will reduce its military activity around the capital of Kiev. Secretary of State Anthony Blinken told reporters, quote, there is what Russia says and there is what Russia does. And Reuters quotes a U.S. official saying any movement of Russian forces from around the capital is a redeployment, not a withdrawal. A Ukrainian commander says his fighters are regaining control of areas initially lost just after the Russian invasion, but he says they are using thousands of missiles every day and need more help with weapons. The U.S. and its allies are reportedly considering another round of assistance for Ukraine that could reach $500 million. And in Lviv, a Ukrainian celebrity chef feeding refugees from the war who are heading to Poland. The winner of the Ukrainian version of the TV show MasterChef says he knows he's not good with guns, but he says he's, in his words, a very nice warrior with a knife in the kitchen. Tonight on the news, analysis from a former State Department official who oversaw Russian sanctions during the Obama administration. That's 7 o'clock with Shep Smith. Kelly, back to you. I'll see you in half an hour, Tyler. Thank you so much. Still ahead, LNG stocks are bound to get a boost from the Nat Gas deal we struck with Europe. But there are two companies in particular that my next guest says stand out as near-term winners. You're looking at one of them, the names and what sets them apart from the competition. That's next. The yield curve went flat. Uh, I don't know if we can show it for a moment here. The 2 is 10's yield curve, which we've been watching all afternoon as it narrowed to two basis points and then one basis point, uh, apparently went flat, we know for sure. I uh, can't yet confirm if it went negative in the past couple of minutes here while we were in the break. It is currently showing six 
one thousandth of a, of a percentage point higher. Uh, we will watch it very closely and show it if the flatness or the inversion happens again. In the meantime, the White House recently announcing a deal to provide more natural gas to Europe in an effort to end their dependence on Russian energy. It's caused a run-up in global energy prices, especially for nat gas. U.S. companies have also already benefited from higher LNG prices this year. Shell's up 22%, Exxon 32%, Chevron up 37%, Chenier up 35%. Joining us now with his names, that could outperform in the this new energy environment is Chase Mulvihill. He's a senior research analyst at B of A Securities. Chase, it's great to have you. Let's start with Baker Hughes. Who do you think could be some of the standouts here? Yeah, yeah. Thanks, Kelly, uh, for having me on, on the show today. Um, yeah, some of the standouts you know, that we think that are going to benefit, uh, you know, from uh, you know an increase uh, in LNG demand, you know, really over the over the longer term, um, is going to be Baker Hughes and, and Chart Industries. Um, you know, they make a lot of the equipment um, that is needed for liquefaction and for regas. Um, and so as, as the world needs, uh, you know, more LNG um, over the next, you know, five to ten years, um, as Russia, you know, continues to kind of wean itself off of, of uh, sorry, as, as Europe ends up weaning itself off of Russia gas, um, it's going to be a big positive. You're going to see a lot of order growth and installed capacity um, additions uh, over the next five to 10 years. And chart may not be as familiar name to our audience. It's tickers GTLS, your target price there, 195. Uh, so a decent amount of upside for Baker Hughes, which was our mystery chart going into the break. You have a target price of 44. I, I guess that raises the question of how much uh, of the prospects of this European deal are already priced into these stocks, given the rallies they've had this year. Yeah, they, they definitely had nice rallies, but we think that there's still, you know, more upside. And, and, and look, the benefit of, of, of this with, you know, the LNG with both uh, Baker Hughes and Chart, um, you know, you do get the, the juice for LNG. I mean, over 50 percent of Chart's, uh, uh, you know, revenues are generated from, uh, you know, natural gas and, and LNG and about a third of, of Baker Hughes is. But if you think about what Europe is, is going to do when it tries to, uh, 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 you know, replace Russia gas, it's going to be with LNG and also with renewables. I mean, both of these companies, you know, have, uh, you know, renewables um, exposure. And so when you think about hydrogen, when you think about carbon capture, you know, both of these companies have meaningful exposure. I mean, so they're going to have both sides of the coin here. They're not only going to have LNG, but they're going to have renewables exposure uh, on the European side as well. And we know that's going to be a huge boon for ESG investors, uh, younger investors and so forth. What about Williams and Kinder Morgan? Yeah, when we think about the LNG and, and where it's going to come from, you know, the U.S. is going to be a big supplier of incremental LNG. It already is a big supplier of LNG today. But when we think about, you know, we think that by 2025, you're going to see at least 150 MTPA of LNG uh, project sanctioned. And then by 2030, you could see 250 to 300 MTPA of sanctions. A lot of that's going to come from the U.S. Um, and so if you're going to have to uh, you know, increase LNG exports, you're obviously going to have natural gas, uh, you know, you have the feed gas here in the U.S. Um, and so that's going to benefit some of the midstream players. I mean, our favorite is, is Williams, uh, but uh, Kinder Morgan is also exposed um, on the midstream side. They're the two largest natural gas exposed uh, midstream companies. Uh, my understanding is you had a neutral on Williams. Uh, have you changed that to a buy? No, our, our, we have a buy rating on Williams. Our neutral was actually on, on Kinder. Um, you know, there's, there's some offsets there with Kinder um, that, that kind of offset the benefit of the LNG over the longer term. Um, and so our favorite kind of LNG play is, is really Williams uh, on the midstream side. 
Awesome. All right, Chase, we'll leave it there. Thanks for calling in. We appreciate it. Thank you. Chase Mulvihill with B of A. Still ahead, solar stocks have also been seeing some nice gains this month, but there could be some headwinds ahead for the industry. We'll tell you what they are and talk about some potential winners and losers right after this quick break. Welcome back. Inflation has been pressuring the solar companies. Now there's a big trade battle brewing in the sector. Pippa Stevens is here with a look at that story. Pippa? Hey, Kelly. Another blow for an industry grappling with rising costs. The Department of Commerce launching an investigation that could result in extending tariffs currently imposed on Chinese solar imports to panels from Malaysia, Thailand, Vietnam, and Cambodia. Together, the four countries make up 80% of total U.S. imports. California-based Oxen Solar requested the probe, claiming that Chinese companies are avoiding tariffs by moving manufacturing. They note the value of Chinese imports has decreased by 86% since the tariffs were implemented in 2012, while imports from the other four countries have risen by more than 800%. But solar advocates say that meaningful production takes place in these countries, and extending tariffs would decimate the U.S. industry. They also argue the tariffs have not led to robust U.S. manufacturing. American Clean Power saying the case drives a stake through the heart of planned solar projects. Uh, if you don't know, you know, your costs, you're just not going to build. Now, turning to the company-level impact, the Invesco Solar Fund is actually higher. Still, analysts say this is a negative for panel makers like Jinko Solar and Canadian Solar, as well as for utility-scale component providers like Shoals Technologies and Array Technologies. On the flip side, for Solar and Maxion Solar, Kelly, some of the names that could benefit. The Department of Commerce has launched this investigation, so what should we expect now in terms of next steps? Okay, so there's 150 days for the preliminary decision. So that gets us to about the end of August and then 300 days before a final decision. That's the end of next January. And there's a lot of unknowns here. The tariffs could be between 50% and 250%. Wow. So basically, if you're a utility scale developer and the panels are a third of your costs, you're not going to get backing. You're not going to launch a project. You're not going to break ground when you have no idea what the overall cost is going to be. Wow, that's a huge level of uncertainty right at a time when many might be more interested in this. Pippa, appreciate it very much, our Pippa Stevens. Up next, shares of Academy Sports and Outdoors popping after strong earnings, comps, and guidance. And creative solutions to solve their supply chain issues could be partially to thank for that. We'll hear about all of that from CEO Ken Hicks next. Welcome back, everybody. This one will cause some headaches. Uh, according to our data, which is based on TradeWeb, the two-year, 10-year spread did not quite invert. It hit zero, but did not officially go negative. Other sources are reporting uh, something else. They're saying it inverted briefly, but that is based off of other data. So I think we can all hope that it inverts more significantly so we don't have dueling headlines. But in the meantime, there you go. We're still up about one and a half basis points. Now, one retailer has been able to navigate soaring inflation and rising rates successfully, at least so far. Academy Sports and Outdoors just beat on earnings, reported record sales and profits for the fourth quarter and for the whole of 2021, and issued strong full-year guidance today. They also got creative to solve supply chain snarls by sharing shipping containers with other retailers and contracting their own planes. The shares are up about 9% today on all of this news. Joining me now is Ken Hicks. He's the chairman and CEO of Academy Sports and Outdoors. Ken, congrats. Welcome back. 
Thanks, Kelly. Good to see you again. Do you, I mean, we are seeing consumer sentiment at a pretty low ebb. Would you say that people are right? This is an environment where people are frustrated and mad about inflation, but they're still spending? Uh, people are still spending, particularly in our area, because people want to have fun. They've developed a lot of hobbies and habits over the last couple of years, and uh, we're seeing them in our stores more frequently buying things uh, to go out and enjoy themselves with. Based on what you see in shopping behavior, do you think the economy remains on solid footing? I think uh, it, it's challenged, but still upright. And, uh, you know, the, the consumer is out there. I think they're being more selective about what they're buying and they're being more thoughtful, but they're still out there buying. And what are some of the strongest and weakest product areas right now? Well, we're seeing uh, things in sports, uh, very strong outdoor camping. Uh, people are out there uh, buying grills and uh, sports apparel and footwear. So pretty much, I mean, to me, it sounds like all of it. Uh, there's this, still this interest in getting outdoors, and it's not necessarily ended with the pandemic, which, of course, was a concern from some investors. Tell me about the labor market. Are you able to fill roles? What's going on with wage pressures? What are you seeing there? We're, we're fortunate in that we're a desired place to work. We've, we've managed our wages. We've, we have increased them over uh, the past couple of years. But uh, we're, we're both 100% staffed in our stores and our distribution centers at this time. And so, again, on the wage front, does that give you any concern uh, about future pressure on profit margins? We, we are we're monitoring that very closely, but we want to take care of our team members. And so we are uh, paying a good wage. But at the same time, we've got to make the appropriate adjustments where where we can in the merchandise. We're a value retailer. So it's very important that we maintain good pricing, but where we can, we're taking some prices up. We're um, modifying merchandise to make it have more value to the consumer so that we can adjust pricing. But uh, we want to keep that value focused for our customer. And finally, it does sound like you've had to resort to some unusual methods to get products and navigate the supply chains, like sharing those shipping containers or hiring your own planes. Are those expected to continue? You know, if you would have asked me a few months ago, I would have thought we would be further along than we are. But I think the supply chain challenges will continue into, um, you know, for sure the latter part of this year. But we, we also are doing things we use alternative ports. We're located in uh, the south and southeast, so we use Galveston and uh, some of the uh, east coast ports. We also are ordering goods earlier and um, making sure we have long-term arrangements with trucking and shipping companies so that we can get the merchandise when we it, need it. Is it any one factor or several different factors that are making these challenges still persistent? It, it's a whole bunch of things. Uh, uh, factory shutdowns in Asia, uh, labor shortages in the United States, uh, trucking shortages. Uh, so it's it's a whole bunch of things that are impacting the supply chain. Fuel costs uh, are, are increasing the cost of, to get merchandise to the stores. But so far, we've been able to overcome it, and we, we're in we're actually in pretty good stock position right now. You certainly have. The shares are up 60% over the past year. Ken, thanks for joining us again today.
Thank you, Kelly. Have a great day. Ken Hicks with Academy Sports and Outdoors. Up next, it's not just billionaires who need to brace for higher taxes if President Biden's 2023 budget gets passed in full. What other high earners and investors in particular need to know. And check out Apple, which is up for its 11th straight day, making it the longest winning streak for the stock since 2003. The market cap also approaching $3 trillion. The shares just under 178. We're back in a moment. Welcome back. President Biden's budget includes more than a dozen tax hikes on high earners and a very big change for investors. Let's get to Robert Frank for the details. Robert. Well, Kelly, there's been a lot of talk about the billionaire's tax, but households earning more than $450,000 a year also get a tax hike in this budget. Now, the top rate goes from 37 percent to 39.6 percent. And more importantly, the income threshold for the top bracket drops from $650,000 for households to $450,000 for households and $400,000 for single filers. Now, those earning between four dollars and $500,000 actually get kind of a double hike from 35 to 39.6%, so up two brackets. As you mentioned, the capital gains rate is the most important for investors. That would go from 23.8% to 40.8%. That applies only to those who make more than a million dollars in combined income and realized capital gains. That, though, would be the largest one-time jump ever for the capital gains tax rate. Now, a lot of changes around the gift and estate tax. The step up in basis, very controversial. That would go away. And there are tighter rules around generation skipping trust and grantor trust. Those have become hugely popular among the wealthy. It would get rid of like-kind exchanges for investment real estate. That's with properties over $500,000. That loophole has fueled a lot of the real estate investment in recent years, so that's going to have a big impact if it passes. Certain charitable giving also coming under scrutiny. Biden calls for requiring donor-advised funds to distribute more money to charity. And yes, carried interest also on the chopping block once again. This, of course, is a big benefit to private equity and hedge fund partners. Three administrations now, Biden, Obama, and, uh, and Trump have all promised to eliminate carried interest. It has not happened. Elizabeth Warren saying on our air this morning, they just can't get the votes, but it is in this budget. So we'll see, Kelly. And that's a big increase on capital gains for those households. What do people think would be the impact if all of this were to come to pass? Well, um, everyone, no matter how they earn their income, whether it's ordinary income or capital gains, would see a, a large increase. So everyone would just pay a lot more taxes. We would see how that changes investing, how it changes consumption, and how it changes savings. But these would be substantial increase. Very little chance that all of it happens. There is some chance that some of it happens. Exactly. And this is the starting point uh, for where we may end up. Robert, as always, thank you, exactly. our Robert Frank. That does it for The Exchange, everybody. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. If a friend asks how you're doing and you say, I'm okay. When the truth is, I don't want my problems to burden anyone. Or you say, Hang it in there. Because if I ask for help, they'll just think I'm weak. Then this is your sign to call, text, or chat. 988 for free confidential support anytime you don't have to hide how you feel